Welcome to Gather In, where you'll hear stories of conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you have an interesting story to tell, please go to our Instagram page or send us an email to gatherin at proton.me. Today's interview is with Brother Russell T. Osgathorpe, who currently serves with his wife in the Provo Temple. They're actually getting ready to serve as senior missionaries in Tahiti, where Russ served as a young man. Russ and Lolly also recently served in the Brigham Young University Hawaii campus. He's also served with Lolly as the president of the Bismarck North Dakota Temple. He's a former Sunday School General President. He's a former Area 70. He served as mission president in the South Dakota Rapid City Mission. Former member of the Tabernacle Choir. Wow, <laughs> he's done it all. Uh, <laughs> prior to his full-time service in the church, Russ was a professor of instructional psychology at Brigham Young University in Provo. He's the author of a number of books. He's the host of the Filled With His Love podcast, uh, which has a book of the same name. Um, and this is how I met Russ, listening to his podcast and reading his book. And I just think you will really enjoy hearing from Brother Russell T. Osgathorpe. So, okay, when I was a young boy um, growing up, I, I lived right across the fence from President and Sister Hinckley. And I'm sure that affected me a lot. I didn't realize at the time that uh, he was, of course, no one knew that he was going to be eventually president of the church, but we were close in in so many ways. Um, our My siblings were close to uh, their children as well. And so uh, we spent a lot of time in the Hinckley home and on the Hinckley property. There was a hollow, we called it, behind where we uh, could go play games in the summer and kick the can and run sheepy run, all these summer games. I used to love summertime uh, in that little neighborhood. And we had some chickens just up the driveway a little ways. And we had, there were sheep that my uncle had that I remember him shearing uh, when springtime came. And so I had kind of, I, I wasn't, it wasn't an urban life. It was a suburban life. And we had a lot of land around us and orchards and it was a beautiful place to grow up. And at age nine, then we moved a little east to where my mother uh, grew up, actually. she Her ancestors settled in the East Mill Creek area, uh, right at the base of Mount Olympus, for those of you who are acquainted with the geography of Salt Lake City. And so they were there in 1846, actually, some of the earliest immigrants, the earliest pioneers to land in Salt Lake City. And so they divided up that land when they passed away and my mother had a plot and my folks built a home on that. And so we lived there for a period of time. And the my neighbor across the street, I got very close to him, a good friend. I was worried that when it came time to go on a mission, 
the bishop would have to choose between the both of us because he couldn't send both of us because there was a rule at that time that in the during the Vietnam War that each ward could only send one young man every six months and our birthdays were right very close together so I thought oh this is a problem but as it turned out um, he decided to enlist in the Marines and so he went to the Marines got wounded got a purple heart came home um, and I went to Tahiti and did not experience any <laughs> battles like he did. Um, I had a wonderful mission in Tahiti. And frankly, uh, some people I know have a hard time deciding to go on a mission, but I was eager from the very beginning. And even as you asked me about my mission, I, I'm not sure where that eagerness came from totally, except I grew up with very devoted parents and, and I spent a lot of time with the Hinckleys. And I saw, I think one thing that excited me actually was I saw President Hinckley as a member of the 12 uh, open the Philippines to the preaching of the gospel and start the work in Korea. And I was so excited to see how the church was expanding and growing all over the world. I, I wanted to be a part of that. I thought maybe I would go to one of those places that he had opened. But as it turned out, I went to Tahiti. And of course, President Hinckley had been to Tahiti uh, himself, and he actually had a very difficult experience in Tahiti. The members came from the outer islands to a conference that he held there, and after the conference, the boat that the members went on to get back to their islands crashed into the reef, and many of them died. It was a tragedy that actually people still talk about in Tahiti. Uh, people couldn't figure out why a tragedy like that would happen to good members of the church like that, and especially when the prophet of God was visiting them. But it happened, and uh, the people, of course, recovered from that tragedy, that their faith was not deterred, uh, and they remained strong in the faith. So, all of those experiences that maybe were contributing factors to my own desire to serve a mission. So I was excited, very excited when I got called to serve in Tahiti. Okay, one of the challenges in, in going to Tahiti was that you had to learn not one, but two languages. That's true. So a lot of people, even now, when uh, we are now going back as a senior couple to serve another mission in Tahiti, and um, people, when I say we've been called to serve in Tahiti, they say, oh, well, that's, a, that's not a mission, that's a vacation. <laughs> and you say, well, actually, and some people say, well, how did you, you know, merit a call like that? How did you get called to a place like that? And I say, well, if you've been to Tahiti, you might think a little bit differently because it is a bilingual nation. And so... Um, the last time I was in Rayatea, for example, an island not too far away from Tahiti, um, you go to the sacrament meeting and you have the opening uh, exercises, the opening remarks from the bishop in both Tahitian and French. You sing one verse of the song in French, one in Tahitian. You have a talk in Tahitian, then a talk in French, a sacrament prayer in French, then one in Tahitian. You go to class and you can either go to a Tahitian speaking class or a French speaking class. 
so the bilingual nature of the place, especially when uh, I did not speak either language very well, I, I'd had some French, but they didn't call anybody to Tahiti that had not had several years of French, but that was that did not help me all that much, frankly. <laughs> Uh, as you might know, when you study a foreign language in another country, you don't learn that much about it. And so uh, it was uphill all the way. And Tahitian, uh, there was no MTC at that time. So I had to learn Tahitian from scratch, which uh, was a test. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and now we're going back. And my French is, I feel very comfortable with my French. Uh, my wife is working very hard in French. But I'm trying to get my Tahitian back in many ways. And so that takes some more effort too, because when we're on the outer islands, uh, people will want to speak Tahitian. And even in some places on the island of Tahiti, they like sometimes to speak Tahitian. So I wanna have some of that kind of uh, refurbished in my skill set so that I can communicate with them better. Wow, that's uh, quite a challenge. I served a mission as a young man in the New Zealand Christchurch mission, fortunately. Yeah. English is the main language, and uh, my wife and I have recently returned from serving a senior mission in the Australia Brisbane mission. So again, uh, English speaking, uh, and I didn't have the challenge of learning one or two languages. So I take my hat off to people who uh, managed to learn a language in such a short time and become proficient. It was, you know, when we were called as mission leaders, our first call when it was President Monson that uh, issued the call when he was a counselor in the first presidency. And he, he said, now you're being called to serve a French speaking mission, but you will not be going to either your mission, Tahiti, or the one I served in in Montreal. You will not be going to either of those. Those have a president right now, but there are a number of other French speaking missions open. So you'll be called to one of those. Uh, however, it turned out that they changed our call right at the end, right? I mean, when we got opened the letter, we didn't really have any warning about this, but uh, we were practicing our French a lot because we knew we'd be going French speaking somewhere. Okay. And it turned out that we were called to the South Dakota Rapid City Mission. When I opened the letter, it gave me actually a great relief because uh, my wife at that point had not had a lot of time to work on French. And I knew that the missionaries and the members would benefit from her much more if she could speak English rather than another language. And so I was actually very excited about the English speaking um, call that we got. I had one person say, wow, I, I didn't really realize that they spoke French in South Dakota. <laughs> Well, some they die. <laughs> reminded me of the time I, I took some Polish classes one time because I was going to Poland for the university. And I, so I signed up for a Polish class because I wanted to be able to say something. And when I got there, and so I was climbing the stairs one day at the university, and the person behind me saw my book. And he looked at the title and he said, Beginning Polish, what is that? I said, it's beginning Polish. <laughs> I, I felt like saying it's a furniture polishing class. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, language are, yeah. can have a lot of, lot of fun with language. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Russ, um, over the years, you've had quite a lot of 
different callings in the church. Um, and I, I guess possibly most daunting one may have been when you were called as a, a mission president. I don't know. But you, were, you mentioned you were called by uh, President Monson. So yeah. can you tell us how, how that came about and what your feelings were when you were called, you and your wife were called as a mission leaders? What were your feelings? Actually, prior to the calling, um, I had been traveling a lot for the university. And it seemed that every time I got on a plane, there was someone sitting next to me who was interested in talking about the church. And so, again, I've always been an eager to serve missionary. I, I, I got so eager to serve, I thought, I can't, I was 56 years old. I, I, I thought, I can't go on a mission right now, but I would really love to go on a mission. Not thinking at all about being called as a mission president, but I had a strong desire inside me to serve a mission and be able to share the gospel. And so uh, I was called by uh, a general authority, 70s secretary one day, and he said, uh, they said he would like to speak with you a little bit. And so I went, my wife and I met with him. He was coming down here to, to Utah Valley. And so I met with him, we met with him there. He, he never mentioned mission president or anything. He just interviewed us for a period of time. And he said, as you know, the church is always looking for leaders to serve around the world and, and uh, in the church. And he said, something may come of this interview and something may not. And we left the interview and I looked at my wife and I said, I don't think anything is going to come of that. And she said, well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was a very short time, like one week later, President Monson called, we were, it was on a Saturday and we were sitting in our bedroom working, basically working both on our computers and he said, um, when, he, when he called, when, he, uh, when my wife picked up the phone, he said, this is President Monson. And my wife said, uh, President Monson, you do not call us very often. <laughs> <laughs> and... and then he got me on the phone and he said, well, as you may know, we are getting to the end of our period of calling mission presidents. And I thought, no, I had no idea that you were getting to the end of your period for calling mission presidents. It was in February. Some mission presidents are notified in November or whatever, but it was February. And um, he said, uh, I just would like to be able to talk to you if I could. And I said, would you like us to come up there to Salt Lake? Because we live in Provo, 40 miles away. And he said, oh, if you could do that, that would be ideal. He said, now you have to remember, the church offices on a Saturday are very much like Fort Knox, and it's hard to get in. <laughs> so but I said, we can go up there. So we changed our clothes, got into good clothes, and drove to Salt Lake to the church offices. He said, there will be somebody at the door to help you get in and lead you to my office. I said, okay, that's very nice. So we, we got there, we drove into the parking lot and the parking attendant looked at us and said, um, Brother Oscarthorpe and Sister Oscarthorpe. And I thought, whoa, 
you know us by just looking at us. I, it was a little bit unusual, a little bit creepy. Frankly. <laughs> I've never seen the parking attendant before, but he knew we were coming and knew what we looked like. And so um, he said, you just park right over there and there will be someone to escort you to President Monson's office. So we got escorted there to his office and then he issued the call. He actually spent like 45 minutes with us. It was very nice. And um, we had never had a personal interview, of course, with President Monson. We'd never shaken his hand, never met him before. Of course, he had the unmistakable President Monson warmth, uh, just totally ingratiating as a human being. I mean, um, he made you feel like he had known you all of his life and uh, it was a marvelous experience, actually, uh, accepting that call. And uh, But of course, at that moment, we thought we were going to be going French speaking. And then that changed when we actually received the letter. Yeah. And yeah, so that was, it was a great experience. At, after we received the call and we were ready to go, some people have this romanticized view that a mission president is just this really amazing calling that everyone would enjoy. Frankly, uh, they would say, well, how does it feel, you know, to be called a mission president? I would say, okay, like a doctor, I hope to do no harm. That was my hope. <laughs> they said, wow. what? I said, I don't want to harm anyone. I said, these young people are at a very critical age in their life, and uh, I don't want to make anyone somehow um, less faithful or doubt the church anymore, or whatever. I, uh, that was my first thought. I don't want to do any harm. Uh, of course, we wanted to help people, but and we wanted to see people brought to the church, but it was an exhilarating experience, a uh, very trying experience at times, because, you know, you've always got missionaries in crisis. I told one mission president, you've always got some missionary in crisis. He said, no, you've got multiple missionaries in crisis. <laughs> and sometimes there's a missionary who's lost a parent. Sometimes there's a missionary whose parents got divorced. Another time there's a missionary whose parents will no longer communicate with them because they don't want them to be serving a mission. I mean, it just goes on and on. Uh, health problems, emotional problems, um, serious difficulties that that young people face at that point in life. And so being a mission president, in many ways, they're uh, in local parentes. Uh, it, it's, it's very challenging. And so you, you want to do everything you can to build them up. And that's what you're, as a mission president, somebody said, well, what's harder, uh, being a stake president or a mission president? And I said, well, think about it for a minute. I said, a stake president has 12 high counselors that he works with, maybe 10 bishops, all of them senior experienced, faithful members of the church. You don't have to worry about these people very much. A mission president has 150 to 200, whatever, uh, missionaries who are 18, 19 years old. Um, they're just kind of beginning to feel their wings, to figure out who they are and how they can function in this mission and to figure out how to be a missionary, which is not a simple thing for some people. So, um, it's totally not, I, I said, being a mission president is much more like being a coach of a team than, than it is uh, being a, a stake president. They, 
the mission president is constantly trying to motivate missionaries to help them do their best, much like a coach is trying to motivate players. It's, uh, it's a very unique calling in the church. And uh, I actually found, uh, you, you mentioned that you might ask about instructional psychology. I had never thought of my discipline as something that would be helpful for a mission president, but I used my discipline all the time because a mission president is mainly a trainer of missionaries and mission other mission leaders, the zone leaders and the district leaders. So and my, my discipline basically was how to help people learn better, faster, more completely, more effectively. It was really looking at how people do learn and how to help them learn more effectively. And so we, you know, and then my wife was a, sixth grade teacher um, for before we left. And so between the two of us, uh, we, we had a lot of feelings, a lot of background in learning and teaching. And so uh, that helped, I think, way more than I had ever anticipated as a mission president. Sometimes missionaries would say, how do you decide what to teach at a zone conference? And I said, actually, that's very simple. I said, Right after a zone conference, we, by then we have a feel for how missionaries are doing, the kinds of challenges they're having, the problems they're dealing with. And so we start planning the next zone conference, which is going to happen in six weeks. Hence, we start planning that as soon as possible, right after, because uh, during zone conference, I would go out with missionaries, watch them teach. And when I watched them teach, I thought, okay, we've got some problems here. We've got to help them with. So, um, Sometimes missionaries in my in our mission, they would say, wow, I wish we would have had this training, you know, six months ago or whatever. I say, well, I, I don't think you were ready for it then. So it had to kind of come sequentially as they grew, as they changed um, and became more proficient as missionaries and as teachers. So, yeah, it was an amazing experience and uh, one that uh, some people have said, you're going to Tahiti, are you going to be mission president? I said, thankfully, no, we're not going to be mission president. We're, we're going as a senior couple. We've had the experience of mission president, and we're happy to let uh, a younger person, in this case, who's in his 40s, be the mission president in Tahiti. <laughs> I, I, I think it's fantastic that uh, uh, relatively young couples in their 40s or maybe 50s serve as, as mission presidents. You still have uh, lots of energy and uh, lots, yeah. of lots of stamina and uh, uh, perhaps, you know, a better memory. <laughs> I don't know about yeah. you, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you're yeah. about 11 years older than me and I've, I'm at the stage where I, I'm just starting to not remember anything. You know, I, I can't <laughs> imagine what it would be like having 200-odd uh, missionaries uh, uh, reporting to me and trying to remember who was who. Uh, <laughs> right. It's, it's quite, quite a daunting thing. I, I once uh, read a comment made by someone online that um, the, the best way to never be called as a mission president is to put up your hands to someone and say, I'd like to be a mission president. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. I, yeah, no, I never did such a thing. And uh, yeah, and then, then we got called. It's, it was totally out of the blue, uh, very surprising, and uh, but a, a great experience, um, one that I will treasure 
forever. Both my wife and I will treasure. Yeah. In, in our recent uh, general conference, Elder Resband spoke quite a bit about, or basically his whole talk was encouraging couples in the church to, to sign up, if you like, to use that terminology, to serve as senior missionaries. Right. Right. Uh, and I, I, I know your mission president, Tahiti, will be very much looking forward to you coming down there to serve. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you what you think you'll be doing down there in Tahiti? Sure. Um, so we're replacing a couple uh, who is now serving uh, as the, the uh, husband takes care of housing and bikes, not cars. There's somebody else to do cars and finance and all that stuff. The wife takes care of uh, medical. She's kind of the first one they call, the first time one missionaries call when they have a health problem. And then she helps refer them. And uh, she takes care of travel and then uh, preparing for zone conferences and leadership meetings. So that's, we will be doing that. But I, I, we wanted to also serve in the temple while we're there. So I asked the, the mission president, I said, will there be time uh, for me to serve in the temple and for my wife. And, and he said, there'll be time for you to serve at least one shift a week and for your wife to perhaps serve a little more than that. So that's kind of how we're preparing. We're preparing for this to be a shared kind of duties mission. So part in the temple and part uh, in the office. Your mission president will be anxiously waiting for you to arrive down there. I'm sure he'll uh, really appreciate it. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, we hope he's not disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll really appreciate having someone with your uh, depth of experience there and your wife as well. Russ, in, in one of your podcast uh, episodes, and uh, actually quite a lot of your episodes, you talk about music and, and the power of music and your experience in, in music. Um, both you and your wife, sang in the Tabernacle Choir. Uh, and I'm not sure if that was just a young age or not, but uh, I'd like to hear the story of uh, how you came to join the Tabernacle Choir. It's, it's a bit of a funny story, actually, because my mom was singing in the choir. I had aunts singing in the choir. My The Russell side of the family was really, they were all singers. And um, so all my aunts and uncles, they were all singers. And the Osgothorpe side of the family also were very musical, actually. And so, um, especially as I go back in my ancestry, there's just a lot of music in both sides of my family. And so I grew up singing in high school choirs and uh, I enjoyed that very much. And so uh, when I was 18, I decided to try out for the Tabernacle Choir. Back then, you would audition with the uh, conductor of the choir in a private room. Sometimes he even auditioned people in the open tabernacle, which was extremely daunting, but uh, this time he was in a private room with kind of a, a translucent glass door that uh, went into the, this office with the piano in it. And so there were about, I would say, six or seven people waiting to audition for him, and I was one of them. The custodian came by and he said, um, he looked at me and he said, Sonny, you need to you need to leave the building. We're closing the building. The only people who can stay here are those who are 
trying out for the choir. And I said, well, I'm, I am trying out for the choir. And he said, he looked at me like, are you kidding me? You're not going to get in the choir. That's ridiculous. You're too young. <laughs> and uh, he's really kind of mocking me, really. And, and I said, well, I, I'm, I'm going to try out for the choir. So he said, well, okay, you know, but what, what a waste of time for you to do that. So came time for me to try out. And the, the woman who tried out just before me, the, the director of the choir, he, you could hear through the, this glass door, you could hear him say, oh, there's something wrong with your voice. That's, let's do that again. Uh, you've got problems with that. Oh my goodness. That's, that's just not, okay, we're done with you. <laughs> that was really encouraging, you know. Um, I thought, uh-oh, I'm in for big trouble here. So, but then I auditioned and I got all done with the audition. And he said, okay, can you be as reliable a member of the choir as your family members that I've, that I've known? And he said, I said, I'll be here every time. I'll be here early. I'll be here, you know. And so he said, okay, we'll see you next Thursday. So I was in. So I kind of, after that audition, I felt like kind of jumping over the large fence that surrounds the tabernacle <laughs> <laughs> and, and going back to that custodian and saying, hey, remember the, <laughs> remember how you thought I couldn't get in? Well, I made it. So anyway, it was, it was very exciting. Uh, one of the more exciting moments in my life, really. And I enjoyed singing in the choir for that year before I went on a mission. And... Uh, and then we sang, then when I, you know, after my mission, I got home and met my wife, who was staying with her sister. And my former mission president was visiting her sister because that was his sister-in-law, his brother married my wife's sister. And so I went to see him. I didn't know that, of course, my wife would, future wife would be there, but she was staying with her sister going to BYU and um, my mission president's wife came up to me and said, Elder Osgothorpe, how old are you? And I said, 21. And she looked at my wife and said, Lolly, how old are you? And she said, 20. And she said, oh, I want you two to meet. I'm going to introduce you two. So um, it was our, my wife's, my mission president's wife that kind of got us together at first. And then my uh, Lolly, who was not my wife yet, but Lolly wanted to know everything about how to get in the Tabernacle Choir, and I wanted to know everything about how to get into the BYU a cappella Choir, and she was a member of that choir, and I wanted to know how to get in it, and so I told her how to get into Tabernacle Choir. She, she told me how to get into a cappella. I got in a cappella. She got in Tabernacle Choir. We were both in both choirs. That's how we courted. You know, every we saw every, each other every day, and the uh, BYU choir, and then on Thursdays and Sundays, we drove up to Salt Lake for um, the Tabernacle Choir. And so, yeah, then we got in again later. Um, her sister volunteered to take our young children so that we could be in the choir again. Lots of great stories about the Tabernacle Choir. Fantastic. Um, something that uh, came to mind as you were talking there, I'm sure, uh, in those early years of uh, meeting Lolly, you were 
filled with his love. Uh, and it's <laughs> filled with love for her anyway. Um, That's right. That's right. But we, we're going to skip over quite a few years now and, and perhaps talk about your, your podcast uh, and perhaps that early devotional talk that you gave, uh, which I think you titled Filled With His Love. Was that the devotional talk or was something like uh, If Everything You Did Was Motivated By Love? Yeah, that that was the title of that that talk. I gave several talks at BYU, but yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, what if everything we did was motivated? What if our only motive were love? Yeah, that was that talk. Yeah. How did you? What what uh, prompted you to start thinking about that concept and 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 write a whole book about it and and then create a whole podcast about it? What what was behind all that? I'm not, you know, that's a hard question. I, um, I had just looked at um, what makes life good in mortality, and I kept coming back to relationships. And it became quite clear that if our relationships, if everything we did in our relationships were motivated by love, instead of greed or being one up on somebody or um, I don't know, uh, jealousy or all kinds of other negative emotions. I thought if everything we did was motivated by love, uh, our life would be completely different. And then it caused me to start thinking about the Savior's life and how every single thing he did was motivated by love, everything. So he is our exemplar, and we are trying to become like him. If we want to become like him, then we need to act out of love rather than some other emotion, some other desire. And that's why in Moroni 7, it says, if you have not charity, you're nothing. doesn't matter what else you have. doesn't matter how much faith you have, how much hope you have. If you don't have charity, it doesn't count for much. Charity is the crowning Christ-like characteristic. It is the one that kind of encompasses the others. And so if we love God, that's why it's the two great commandments are love God and love others. And I, I really like how Elder Christofferson in uh, a fairly recent conference talk said the two great commandments are love God with all your heart and love others as yourself. He says, or the higher holier way would be to love others as I have loved you. That's a little higher and holier way than love others as you love yourself. And so that, you know, that really encapsulates my whole, I don't know, interest and message in this. You look at all the troubles we have in the world, whether it be war or immorality or, um, I don't know, political unrest. And you've always got motives behind those actions that are not worthy motives that cause problems. And, and so it can be envy, covetousness. And covetousness is, is just kind of one of this huge overarching negative motives that 
gets us every time. If we covet somebody else's telephone or somebody else's car, somebody else's wife, somebody else's husband, um, all of these uh, actions that flow out of covetousness are, are just really counterproductive, really not good. And so, and we have to deal with that as human beings because there are always moments when we look at something else and, and wish we had it or want to get it or whatever. So, yeah, that, and my, I don't know, my commitment to that hasn't changed. In fact, it's amplified over the years. I, I just, I, I've got a, a brother who, when that, did I ever tell you about my brother and becoming active again? Uh, I think I might've listened to it in a podcast. Perhaps. Yeah. 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 But this, you know, when, when the book came out filled with his love, I called my brother and I said, would you like a copy of this book that I just wrote? And he said, well, you know, I don't read. And what he really meant was, I don't like to read. He, he can read. <laughs> he just, he's not a book reader. He, he's more a video watcher. And so I said, no, so he, I said, you don't have to have it if you don't want. I said, no, I, I just wondered if you wanted one, I'll send you one. It's totally less active in the church at the time. It hasn't been, hadn't been active for 30 years. And uh, then he said, well, hey, you know, because you wrote it, I want to read it. So you send it and I'll read it. I said, okay, but only if you want to. I said, I, I'm not forcing you. And he said, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take a look. So he gets the book. And I invited him to a basketball game, which wasn't very common, but it, it just happened to be, I had an extra ticket. So I invited this game, came down and he said, hey, I've been reading the book and this is what chapter I'm on. I said, already? You're already on that chapter? He said, yeah. I said, wow, yeah, for somebody who doesn't like to read, you're, you're reading pretty good there. And eventually he called me one day. He said, let me see if I get this straight. You're saying that if somebody doesn't have good relationships with somebody else, it's because they don't have a good relationship with God. They first need to love God, and then good relationships with others can flow out of that. And I said, actually, that's the whole point of the book. And he said, well, I've got a problem. I don't have any relationship with God. So I need to do something. So. I said, well, he said, what do I do? I said, well, you can start with prayer. I said, he said, I used to pray when I was a kid. I, I, I used to know God existed, but then he really became quite agnostic for a very long time and didn't believe in God. And so he said, I, I, mean, I, he says, I can hardly remember how to pray. And so he says, I'll give it a shot. So he called me one day and he said, I just said my first prayer. I said, how did it go? He said, well, he said, I think God was shocked. Uh, he had no idea who this was. It was like, you must have the wrong number. <laughs> and uh, he said, but it felt good. And I'm going to do it again. So then he really started to pray. And one day he called me and he said, you know what? I feel like now I, I feel like I got a prayer all the time going between me and God. And I said, oh, now you're getting to this praying without ceasing. I said, that, I said, things will, good things will happen. 
for you, you know. And so then he had this great bishop who, because he started going back to church, there's so many stories associated with his return to activity, I won't go into them all, but so many people helped him along the way. Um, and this bishop said, I, I just want to have a chat with you sometime. And so he said, sure. So he went and he said, I, I'm not giving you, the bishop said, I'm not giving you a temple recommend. I'm just going through the questions to, just so you can see where you stand if you, if you someday want to get a temple recommend. He said, okay. So he gets through and he says, well, I do have a little challenge here with the tithing because my wife is left less active. That, that has to be worked out. And bishop said, that can be worked out. He said, otherwise, I, I, think I'm, I think I'm good with all the questions. And he said, okay. So he says, when would you like to prepare to go through the temple? My brother said, well, I'm thinking maybe when the Salt Lake Temple is finished. And <laughs> as we all know, that, that may not be for another five years. <laughs> yeah. and, and so the bishop said, that's one possibility or next year you could plan on next year it was october then and so that stuck in my brother's mind and he called me one day and he says i i think i want to go through the temple i, I want to you know he'd been through the temple of course many years before like 40 years before and i said great so he got ready and had an interview with the state president and that went way better than he thought it might. He was a little worried about that. He didn't know the stake president at all. Um, but afterwards he said that, that man was just marvelous. He said he was incredible uh, the way he treated me. And I said, I, I thought it would be okay. <laughs> and so then he said, I, I'm ready. And I said, well, let's uh, come down here to Provo. We went through the temple that very day. Um, his first time in 33 years. So watching him come back, you know, uh, has been just for me, I think one of my greatest joys in, in life. He's, he's doing extremely well. Um, and just actually seemed like a different person. He would, he would talk on the phone sometimes and I thought, I, I feel like I'm talking to a whole different human being. It's like when the scriptures say, become a new creature in Christ, that's what he's done. And uh, I am so in awe, basically, of the changes that he's made in his life and how he's been able to do that. So that means to me that I can make changes in my life. I can do better. Uh, that we can all do better, we can all make changes. And uh, that conversion power of the Spirit is real, uh, and it causes people to do things out of love, love for God and love for others. Yeah, I think uh, from what I've heard, there's been quite a few miracles uh, that have come from uh, people reading your book and, and, and understanding it and applying it. Um, perhaps uh, as we get towards getting towards the end of our time together now, uh, particularly moving story you've mentioned is uh, uh, the charity that you're involved with, uh, the proceeds of your book going to this particular charity. 
Can you just uh, tell us a little bit about that, please, Russ? Yeah, that's that's just it's an amazing story. Uh, this is my niece, um, Julie Hernando, and her husband Janelle. Janelle, her husband is Filipino, and she is um, she was raised here in Utah. And Janelle uh, was uh, born in the Philippines, but then uh, his family immigrated to uh, this country uh, fairly, not, you know, fairly early in his life. So if you were to meet him, you'd think he was born here in America, but he's, uh, he is a Filipino. And my niece got a desire to help people in the Philippines, uh, help young girls who had been sexually abused. And so, uh, they decided to go to the Philippines and see what they could do to start a shelter for them uh, called Lighthouse. Uh, and so this Lighthouse shelter is a place where they can take young girls, teenage girls often into their shelter and help them prepare to re-enter society in a healthy way because they've been basically destroyed in many ways by, by, I don't know how else to say it, by evil people. And the success of this effort to me is, is remarkable in so many ways. Uh, they've had the help of mayors who have just embraced their efforts and tried to do all they could to help this succeed. And more recently, the church has help them and so now they have two shelters in the philippines which is a massive undertaking they've got to find skilled people to help in the shelter educators counselors and so now they have got these two shelters functioning and so now they'll be able to help twice as many young people who have undergone abuse so yeah when i was writing the book i ran across the the uh children with severe attachment disorder. And it's, it's a real thing. And attachment problems that happen early in life when you're abused by a parent, these are very hard to overcome and to um, become a healthy adult and to be able to form relationships that are healthy as an adult because your ability to trust others has been damaged. Uh, your ability to... Um, feel comfortable and at ease and secure in the presence of others has been damaged. And so um, you have great difficulty with marriage and with uh, forming other relationships. So uh, that has to be overcome through lots of help and therapy. And that's what Julie and her husband are doing in the Philippines. And I so I, I, when I wrote the book, I said, what, what better place to put any royalties that come from the book uh, than to send them directly to this center this, uh, for helping young people who have had severe, severe attachment problems in their youth. So that's what we've done. And uh, we've, we've just been a, a very small part of the help. They've received lots of help from others uh, in the US and elsewhere and so uh, the work is going forward very well in those two centers fantastic um i 
remember you telling the story about uh, one, uh, I think you sent a small number of copies there. Uh, it had such a good effect that you, your uh, niece asked for copies for everyone there. Uh, yeah. To, to, to be able to help everyone there. So uh, it's fantastic that you've been able to do that. So um, if people want, um, want to learn more about the book before reading it, probably going back to your season one of the uh, podcast would be helpful to get uh, an understanding about attachment theory uh, and attachment disorder. Yeah. Yeah. If they, and, and once you do, yeah, yeah those early episodes um, are actually, they're the most listened to episodes <laughs> on the podcast, of course. And, and they, they, they kind of were made with no rehearsals. My brother, brother in law, I mean, my son in law sitting me down and saying, okay, just tell us what the book's about and everything. I didn't have much time to prepare. And those episodes went out quite quickly, but it's a very quick overview of attachment uh, theory. And once you start to look at attachment theory and then you examine uh, relationships that you're aware of where there are problems, uh, you'll start to see how uh, early attachment problems for a child lead to difficulties later in life, unless the, the person gets help and overcomes those attachment problems. So as we know, like 25% of all adults in the US, I don't know if, if uh, Australia is any better, probably not, this is pervasive around the world, but one in four people, one in four adults is estranged from at least one family member. Could be a sibling or a parent. They don't talk to each other. They are completely separated from each other because of difficulties they've had earlier in their lives that they've never been able to overcome. And there are lots of people who have spent time trying to help people overcome these estrangement problems. And uh, this, is, this is a sad way to go through mortality, frankly, when you are at odds with the people who are supposed to love you the most and who you're supposed to love the most. So I think people, when they listen to those first episodes, they'll say, oh, that kind of describes somebody that I know so, or themselves. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Russ, uh, thanks so much for your time today. It's been wonderful. I'll put uh, yeah. links in my notes to uh, to your book and to your podcast so that people know, know where to find you. Uh, the simple way is to get onto Amazon Books and uh, search for Russell, Russell T. Osgathor. Uh, and that's a, a simple way to do that. Russ, just we've got five, just under five minutes left. I'd like quickly to hear about what your favourite aspect of the gospel might be and perhaps your testimony to close. Well, my, my feeling right now is we need to do all we can, all of us, to uh, strengthen the kingdom here on the earth. We make covenants in the temple to build a kingdom and strengthen it, and uh, the Lord needs everyone that's why we're going on another mission right now. Um, of course, we've got limitations. Everybody has limitations. Young people have limitations. They look like they're uh, without limitations, but that's not true. They have 
they have limitations too. And we all have limitations. But in spite of those limitations, the Lord can magnify us and help us do what needs to be done so that we can help more people embrace the gospel. That is, I think, uh, central to my testimony. This is uh, my, my witness is that the Lord is so eager to have us receive his love and share that love with everyone we can. And in our case, going to Tahiti, we're going to be supporting mainly the missionaries. We won't be doing a lot of direct teaching. We'll probably do, be doing some with the missionaries. But we need to support the missionaries so that they can be as successful as possible. And so each of us, to me, needs to look inside ourselves and say to ourselves, how can we strengthen the kingdom? How can we build the kingdom here on the earth? Uh, in the very short time, actually, that we have on this planet, it's not a long time. And so uh, the more we can invest ourselves in sharing what can bring people true joy, uh, not only now, but in eternity, that's what I think we need to do. I, I know that God lives. I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that the prophet Joseph was instrumental in beginning the restoration and that that restoration continues every day with now with President Nelson. I was standing next to President Nelson one day in the church office building, and I said to him, this was a very important day in the history of the church. And he looked back at me and he said, Brother Osgothorpe, every day, is a very important day in the history of the church. <laughs> and I said, yes, that's true. <laughs> and what he's really saying is this church is rolling forward as never before. And there are people inside the church that are as faithful as we've ever had in the history of the church. And because of that, it will continue to roll forth just as it the prophet Joseph said, uh, in the standard of truth has been erected, no unhallowed hand can stop it from progressing. It will not ever stop progressing. And I know that with all my heart. And I bear witness that he lives and that this is his work in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for your time today, Russ. It's been wonderful to hear you and, and learn from you. Once again, I'll just encourage people to uh, go to your podcast filled with his love by uh, at least that book and and check out your other books as well. Uh, and all, all the royalties from the books go to the uh, shelter for young people in the Philippines, which is just a, a wonderful uh, thing to do. Thanks again for your time, Russ. Thank bye you, now. Murray. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye. Bye. If you have an interesting story to tell, please contact us for our Instagram page or send an email to gather in at proton.me